Driving your newly imported Volkswagen in the late 50s had to be one of the coolest things about. As time went on, a lot of the V8s started to come to fruition and the highways and byways became faster to get around in. The Volkswagen with only a 36 horsepower engine was a prime candidate for some performance modifications. Unfortunately, performance modifications were typically quite expensive. Volkswagen parts like Okrasa were expensive and had to be brought in from specialty manufacturers or suppliers. Judson Research and Manufacturing Company of Konshohoken, PA came out with the first supercharger for the VW. Judson was not new to the game of making superchargers. The company started back in the 1880s and working as mechanical electrical engineers started their business in farm equipment. As a hobby they started making Judson superchargers more for custom applications and racing. They first went into production with the flathead Ford followed shortly thereafter with a supercharger for the British MG TD sports car. What really put Judson on the map was in 1956 when a version of that supercharger was made for the flat four engine. With the explosion of the Beatles popularity in the United States, Judson Manufacturing now had to move to a bigger facility. Some people thought it was odd to put a supercharger on an economy car, but not the VW enthusiasts. Judson sold more of this supercharger than any other model that they made. The benefit of this was affordable horsepower. It didn't hurt that it only cost $100 for this performance modification for your car, or that the Williams & Avery Advertising Company was phenomenal at marketing. Oh yeah, Williams & Avery, that's the middle names of the Judson brothers. They would offer free literature if you just wrote to the company, but in early 1956, with the Volkswagen model now being available, Judson Supercharger's literature became much more specific, showing stylized, fast versions of the VW Beetle and ads that said things such as, for big car performance, supercharge your VW. They went all out in advertising when Foreign Car Guide came out. The first issue of Fall 1956 magazine ran the article outlining supercharger options for the VW. The first issue of Foreign Car Guide ran a bunch of supercharger models that it showed the Judson as well as many of its competitors. It also showed a picture example installation of the Judson unit itself. Since that point, they continued to advertise in Foreign Car Guide with a full back page ad with every issue until December of 1966. The ads were super racy and real technologically advanced looking. Sometimes their advertisements were a little bit over the top. Horsepower claims were a little exaggerated. They would claim things like thousands of models sold before they had thousands of models sold. You could buy the kit from any Judson distributor or buy them from the factory direct. You could also get your supercharger installed at official VW dealerships. That was pretty surprising, knowing Volkswagen's reputation of really not allowing people to tamper with their super reliable engines. But that didn't last long. In 1960, Volkswagen of America decided to put their foot down, threatening any official VW dealerships with the loss of their franchise if they continued selling accessories not sanctioned as official VW accessories. Volkswagen of America also reminded dealerships that fitting a Jetson supercharger to a VW would immediately invalidate their warranty. The closing of these sale outlets led to the production of the Judson Personal Memo, mail shot to prospective owners who had already asked for product details. In it, Charles Judson explains why local VW dealers were no longer stocking the Judson Supercharger. More importantly to the buyer, the memo announced that the company was passing on the dealer discount, reducing the price of the VW kit from $144 to $100 when you purchase directly from Judson, the factory. The Judson Supercharger provided thousands of VW owners with that extra needed horsepower, with originally the 36 horse kit, then moving on to the 40 horse kit. Unfortunately, based on the size of the Supercharger, once the 1500 and 1600 came out, there wasn't much more the Supercharger could do for performance for the VW engine, based on the limited size of the compressor. Due to the ever-changing evolution of the Volkswagen, that was most likely the demise of the success of the VW Supercharger, the increased displacement of the VW 1500. A little history on the Judson brothers. The two Judson brothers were the driving force of the Judson Research and Manufacturing Company, but almost direct opposites in character. William Haddon Judson was the innovator and inventor, the very reason the company was a success. He had a tough exterior, didn't suffer fools gladly, and would let you know exactly what he thought. 
not for him the confines of the office, had set his personal lay at the head of the machine shop and got his hands dirty along with the rest of his team. You would rarely see Haddon out of his white lab coat. Haddon drove a silver Mercedes 190 with a beautiful red leather interior. It was his pride and joy, supercharged, of course. Although Haddon never took the academic route to engineering proficiency, he was made an honorary member of the Society of Automobile Engineers. He was proud to display the citation on a plaque in the hallway that linked the offices to the workshop. Charles Avery Judson was the administrator and PR man. Charles spent his day in the office, dealt with finances, advertising, and customer relations. Charles was a very elegant man, always dressed immaculately in tailored suits and a bow tie. Although it was Haddon who was the engineer, it was Charles who drove the fast cars, most of them supercharged too. The excerpts that I read, and some that I ad-libbed, were mostly done by John E. Moxon, who did the history of the Judson Research and Manufacturing Company. There's more history to be found on some links that I'll put in the description of the podcast. On today's show, I'm going to speak to George Fulci from New Milford, Connecticut. He is essentially the Judson guru nowadays. He remanufactures the Judson completely, and if you have one you need to have rebuilt, he's your guy. I get into a lot of the details with him as to what you can expect for a cost of rebuild to most any question you would have for George, who's the guru for rebuilding these superchargers. But first, let's get a word from our sponsors. Are you looking to get some disc brakes on your bus on the down low? How about a narrowed beam? What about converting your bus to IRS? Well, let me tell you what. The boys over at Type E Motorsports got your number. They've got a disc brake kit that allows you to go buy off-the-shelf factory-available parts at any local auto parts place and adapt disc brakes and wide five to the front of your bus. For only 500 bucks, you can pick up that kit that takes your 63 to 67 bus and converts it to discs in the front with ready-to-go off-the-shelf parts that you purchase at your local auto parts place. How about a narrowed beam? A U.S.-made narrowed 4-inch link pin beam, 215 bucks. Or to do IRS, 950 bucks for a complete easy bolt-in IRS kit. He also does full bus beams end-to-end, rotor-to-rotor for three grand turnkey. So if you guys want to get some of your stuff decked out on your bus or your bug, go check out Type E Motorsports. Now, Brian's been on the podcast before, so you can check him out in episode number 105. Check him out at type-emotorsports.com. They've got a lot of suspension parts available, all U.S. made and ready to go. So hit them up at typeemotorsports.com. Guess who's back? VW Trends Magazine, that's who. Bringing back the fun in magazines. A true cross-culture of the VW hobby. VW Trends was always willing to step outside and bring you the latest trend in the VW scene. And you could be a part of this historic relaunch. How, you ask? Well, go to VWTrendsMagazine.com and there are several different ways that you can help relaunch this magazine. That's right. This is a grassroots effort put on by the VW community itself, relaunching one of those fun magazines that was bringing the culture to the market. They've got subscription packages all the way from $1.99 in the Founders Club, all the way to donate five bucks just to do your part to help get this back on the scene. This magazine for the people's car is for the people and it's by the people. So now you guys can be a part of history and contribute to help get this magazine relaunched. First issue's coming out shortly, so stand by to get more details on that. But for now, go to vwtrendsmagazine.com and support the relaunch of VW Trends Magazine. All right, guys, let's get into it this week with George Fulci, Judson Supercharger Guru, on this week's Let's Talk Dubs. Okay, everybody, on today's show, last week, and you guys know that I've had a car that had a Judson supercharger on it, and I, I started going down a rabbit hole of just looking up some Judson history and whatnot, and I was lucky enough to stumble across a Judson registry site, which then, doing some further digging, I ran into our sh- our show guest today, George Fulci from New Milford, Connecticut, and he is the Judson guru. Uh, George, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks very much. So we spoke earlier about um, 
well, I just kind of talked to you for a few minutes earlier during the week, but you know, with the Judson Supercharger, which there's lots of layers to that, how did you first get into the Judson Supercharger and the evolution into where you started? Because you, you essentially you're the guru who rebuilds them and goes through them. How did that start for you? Well, back probably back in the 70s, I'd seen an article in, I think it was a Haynes repair manual for an Austin Healy spread. It was a reprint of an article from one of the, one of the auto magazines from the mid-60s featuring a Judson Sprite supercharger. So I, I had a Sprite at the time, and I, I knew these things existed. Uh, I'd never seen one. I thought it was you know, a really cool-looking item, and I had no idea they made them for any other vehicles. I thought it was just for the Sprite. And uh, some years later, uh, in the early 90s, a buddy of mine uh, invited me to go check out a couple of parts cars, and among the parts were a couple of incomplete Sprite Judsons. And I was working as a machinist at the time, and uh, I uh, you know, was able to make some of the missing pieces to complete the second kit. And at the time, there was a guy advertising in Hemmings Motor News who called himself Dr. Supercharger, uh, advertising you know, Judson, uh, Judson items. So I, I contacted him trying to find information and uh, mentioned that I had made some pulleys for, for myself. And he asked, well, could you make some pulleys for me? And so I... Kind of, you know, got the idea that maybe there's you know, some kind of a little niche, niche hobby market for this out there because uh, nobody else was doing anything with them. Sure. And uh, within a year or two, he kind of disappeared, and I, uh, you know, probably '93, '94, I, I got up the nerve to put an ad in Hemmings advertising parts, and uh, and people started calling me <laughs> from all over the place, wow, uh, from Europe, um, and uh, you know. One by one, I discover. Oh, they, oh, they make a, they make a kit for the Corvair. Really? Could I borrow your pulleys and uh, the manifolds from me so I could make some sketches and some drawings? And that's how I slowly managed to, you know, gather up all the information, you know, to, you know, be able to complete parts for all kits. There's still a couple of parts that have eluded me. The uh, the crank pulley for the B18 Volvo. I've never actually had my hands on one of them. Uh, I've got a drawing of one, but it's not a not a very good one. And I think the support bracket for the Mercedes 190 SL. I never saw one of those, but you know everything else. I've uh, I've pretty much got a library of drawings and uh, and sketches, so I can I can re- reproduce this stuff. Oh wow! So if someone has if someone happens to have their own Judson, let's say all they have is the supercharger, you can help them build the rest of the kit pretty as much far as. All pretty the, much if, you, if you've got the pump everything else can be had yes oh wow so as far as i mean on some of these kits did, did a lot of them resort back to the original carburetors for the car or did they use a specific judson carburetor i mean a carburetor for the judson or did they modify the original carbs uh the vw kits were supplied with either a richard main jet or a different air corrector jet and they used the, the stock carburetor uh, most of the other kits were supplied with a at the time a new holly 1904 carburetor which i think were inexpensive and very plentiful back at that time not so much now yeah so the it was so a, a lot of the other kits have similar carburetors but you yes. know it's, it's funny because you know my main thing is volkswagens that i'm into and I, i'm also i dabble in corvairs a little bit <laughs> and mm-hmm. when we got to talking I, I remember you know coming across and seeing a corvair supercharger kit and then of course after our conversation earlier in the week i went down a rabbit hole of you know, looking at the Corvair kit, and it was really interesting because you know the Corvair has a has a, a a flat fan, and it's a it's got a belt that turns ninety degrees on the cooling system for the motor, mm-hmm. and yep. then for any other accessories, they would go with a vertical, you know, vertical pulley of some sort. And this has the what was interesting to me is you know as we all understand you know balanced tubes of carburetors and and having everything you know balanced out left to right, especially on a, on a a boxster style motor, you know, where it's on opposite ends, you know, with the supercharger on the Corvair, it's off to the far right, like an air conditioner. And then the carburetor I think is even further back and right. And it splits into two ports. It was, it was interesting. It's an interesting design. And I don't know if, you know, the right side ran better than the left side because of natural vacuum, but, uh, I don't, I don't think it's split into two separate chambers. I think the, the pump goes into a common plenum, and then there's a, a crossover tube that goes over to the left bank of cylinders. Yeah, the Corvette, the Corvair kit also, it, it, it's driven off of the rear of the engine, so the rotor is cut opposite to all of the other Judson kits that are run off the front of the engine. So it's, uh, yeah, it's kind of an oddball. 
obviously with the offset on that uh, on the carburetor I, I guess it would make sense if it's going into one one pressure tube and then the vacuum of the motor is kind of pulling it i guess whichever way it needs it so. right right i mean there, there may be some slight loss because you know some of the pressure is going through a it's about a two and a half foot long tube over to the other side but i think it's yeah now so, so let's say a guy like me runs across i get i find the compressor for the Corvair kit. Are you able to mm -hmm. build the other pieces for the kit? Um, I can supply the crank pulley, the oiler certainly, you know, the rebuild parts, the veins, bearings, and seals. If the Corvair had like a support bracket, that I don't have, although that could be fabricated. You know, it's the kind of thing where you kind of have to have an engine there where you can fit this stuff up. Sure. It's a support bracket. There was another little manifold that went below the main manifold, I think down to the original carburetor location and the crossover tube. Yeah, which you know that that's basically a, you could bend up a piece of conduit for that. That's that's pretty simple. And was there was there a total production number known of the Judson kits manufactured by Judson? I think they're advertising. You know, by the mid '60s, was saying over sixty thousand kits produced, and that was probably true. But if any records survive, I don't know of them. I, I think all that information is lost. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I I, I don't know the full history of the Judson, uh, the Judson workshop itself, but it's, my understanding is, it, is they came to be, their first supercharger they made were for flatheads. Is that the first thing Correct. that they were making? Yep. Yes. And then how many flathead kits, I mean, was that their main flagship thing in the beginning or did it just evolve from there? I think they were doing other things at the time as well. I've got some kind of an old catalog advertising pistons, so they may have been into that at some point. Uh, I have no idea how many of the flathead kits were, were built. Couldn't have been too many. I've crossed paths with maybe maybe 15 of them in, over the years, you know, and I've had, probably had my hands on 10 of them. So they're, they're not real common. So maybe a few hundred kits at best. But the next was the MG, called the MG26 kit, which was for the MG T-Series cars. And those were very popular in the mid-50s. And... They probably did, uh, you know, several hundred of those. Uh, then they then they switched. I believe in 1956 they came out with the VW kits. Yeah. That was a they kind of the, the, the MGT kit was kind of an overbuilt kit. It had huge bearings and seals. You know, uh, it, it was way way overbuilt. For the for all the later kits, they went with a smaller bearing, smaller shaft, you know, larger diameter chamber, and uh, you know that followed through right up up through the end of their production. Now, now, when you say, so the MG, you're saying the MG kit was overbuilt, like it was bigger than it needed to be? The, the bearings were much larger than they had to be, yes. So, essentially, it would be, like, if you run across one of those, it's probably still a good a good unit? Uh, usually, yes, yeah, because the, uh, the rotor was, it's a very long housing, small diameter rotor. I think the rotor's like three inches in diameter. The veins didn't, didn't travel as far in the slots, so the slots tended not to wear out. It's just you know they're all they're all pushing seventy years old now. You know, sure. The bearings, the, the seals dry out, the veins become brittle, and and that goes for all the older Judsons. Uh, anything even anyone you find now that's as is, assume that it's got the original components inside, and always switch them out because otherwise you know if 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 they fail, you know if the veins come apart, you know you've got debris. It can it can break through the housing inside of the supercharger. Any debris is going to go on in through your engine. Uh, if you see a bearing up, it either wipes out the shaft or wipes out the seat inside of the end cap. So always change those pieces out. And then, and those are services that you offer that people can ship their jets yeah. into you, and you're able to take care of that. And we're going to get into that in, in a little bit in respect okay. to the stuff that you do. Now, diving a little deeper into the VW supercharger itself, in percentages of superchargers that you've gone through, do you see uh, what's the percentage of VW superchargers you see to other Judsons that you get come across your way? Oh, I'd say probably 50% of what I've done has been VWs and, you know, everything else, you know, adds up to the other 50%. That's wild. And obviously because the popularity of the Volkswagen back in the day would be the reason why there were so many kits sold. Oh, um, yeah, they were, they were very popular. Yeah, they used to sell them in J.C. Whitney. Uh, you know, they were very prolific advertisers back then in all the automotive magazines. So, yeah, they were, they were very popular for VWs. And what was the price of the kit for a VW back then? I think it was like $159 or something like that. <laughs> That's <laughs> insane. Kit. You know, it was probably, you know, it was a lot of money back then. It was probably a day's, uh, you know, a week's pay for, for most people at the time. But, uh, yeah, kind of laughable now. 
Yeah, I mean, it's you know to think that, that you get that kind of that kind of horsepower. I mean, it's ten percent of what the car would cost you, right? Fifteen, sixteen hundred bucks it was yeah. selling for back yep. then. Mm-hmm. And then the housing itself for the VW unit is that the most compact housing that they have. Yes, they that same that same housing, the same dimensions were used for the Sprite kit, just with a different configuration of the casting, but it's the same volume. And we were talking earlier in in the process of the the assembly of that piece. That piece, you you were telling me that the center shaft. So, the process of rebuilding. And what are the typical things that you see? And I wanted to get into you to explain a little bit about the the casting of the center, uh, the center pump. I guess it would be. Um, what what was the process that they manufactured those that that was back then? That's different to today. Well. I- I'm pretty sure the way they manufacture the rotors were they they must have had a foundry cast the rotor material around two suspended shafts, a front and rear shaft, that the shaft does not run through the entire rotor. And I think they did their finished machining after that off of the centers of the shaft. Uh, you know, some of the some of the uh, the rotors they're they're kind of porous, they're very soft, they you know, they had a tendency to wear pretty quickly from the sliding action of the veins. The reproductions that I do now, I make out of 6061 billet aluminum, which is much, much harder. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, depending on the condition of the shaft, sometimes I can I can basically machine most of the old rotor away, reuse the shaft, bore a hole through an ingot, you know, with that, that's been appropriately cut for the slots, mm-hmm. and then press the new shaft in. And in all your years of seeing this, I mean, they were pretty precisely made. I mean, when you do, so when you you get an old one, do you turn it down and just leave the original casting in the center and then run it through a new ingot, like as a solid shaft? Well, it, or do you actually take it, the ends out and machine them and press them into the new? It, it depends. Mm-hmm. It, it kind of depends. Sure. If, if, if the shaft is wiped out, you know, if the bearing seized on the shaft, then I'll cut the shaft off. You know, bore into the original rotor. And then press in a new shaft. If if the if the slots in the rotor are worn out, then it's time for a new ingot. Got it. Got it. So the slot the the slot because I I've got one in my the slots on mine are kind of wobbled out. They kind of have a they, they kind of V out toward the end. Right. That's what happens. Yep. Now, what would cause that? Was it just the metallurgy of the material and, and just, just the rotation? Just million, million, millions of sli- cycles sliding in and out. Um, you know that veins you know lightly scraping against that material. And the way yep. the the veins work, were they just thrown out by centrifugal force? Yes, that's all. No no spring action or anything. Uh, whenever that pump is turning, uh, you know, those vein the vein tips are against the bore of the housing. That's crazy. And so it, they would they would just they as it starts to spin, they would be thrown out to the edge, and then that would create your compressor. And uh, as you so would the pressure of the it's just an interesting design because I'm thinking about, I'm thinking, well, okay, well, how did it lubricate? Was there any lubrication inside there or was that part of the issue? Well, yes, the lubrication is, lubrication is required. That's what the, the Marva oiler or the Amco oiler is for. You You, you have to have a mist, a mist lubricator to lubricate. It's basically the tips of the veins against the bore of the housing. The bearings are sealed. You know, the grease in the bearings are sealed. That's not what the lubricator is for. It's, it's to create a, you know, a very light oil film between the tips of the veins and, and the housing. And so possibly the reason why someone would wear out is maybe somebody's oiler would run out of oil. Correct, or they or it was insufficient. Now, did they always sell the kit with the oiler? Yes. So you you wouldn't. So anybody that's running without the oil system on there is running it incorrectly. I'm sure you've probably seen them without the oilers on. Uh, anybody trying to run one without an oiler isn't going to be running it for too long. <laughs> yeah. It's not gonna last at all? No. It'll overheat, and the veins will you know deteriorate and disintegrate and then you've got a failure now the original veins what, what was the material out of the original veins what was it made out of it's called linen phenolic it's uh sheets of it's basically cotton cloth and they impregnate it with some kind of a resin i think it's some kind of an epoxy resin and they put it under pressure and bake it and i think there might be some kind of an annealing process but uh it's it's stable dimensionally but it's tough enough and it's long wearing so that you know it, it holds up to you know like i said those millions of sliding cycles and the 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 material itself i would assume doesn't transfer heat to i mean it's it's no probably not a thermal conductor no it's like uh it's almost like uh insulation material 
sometimes you know carburetor spaces carburetor spaces will be made out of phenolic now it was interesting because when i looked at it i you know i i everybody who has half enough knowledge to be dangerous says the same things like i said to you when we first talked about i said oh yeah they were made out of bakelite weren't they <laughs> well bakelite sort of a, a generic term i don't think bake bakelite proper has a has a fiber base to it yeah i think it's just a a very hard thermoset plastic whereas you know you know, this does have a, it's either, you know, either cotton or, or canvas uh, cloth, you know, a, as a weave that's basically, you know, adding some dimensional stability to this stuff. And then the new veins, what, what are the new, new veins made of? What type of material have you kind of worked with? Well, I, I still use the linen phenolic, although what I've been using the past couple of years actually has a, has a molybdenum disulfide compound mixed in with the, uh, in, you know, mixed in with the resin. So it's, it's kind of self-lubricating. It's it's like a dry lubricant, mm-hmm. and I've had good I've had good success with those. Uh, you know, I haven't heard of any failures of those at all. So, and now when so let's say somebody's got their supercharger apart, right? They're they're inspecting it. What types mm-hmm. of things are they to look for, and what's the telltale sign that it's not rebuildable? I mean, have you had them that just not rebuildable? Um, you know, th- the main thing is the condition of the rotor. Really, you know, everything else, yeah. If you know, and that can be that can be remedied as well. You know, the housing should be bored out, either either bored out or honed out at least to remove uh, any any chatter marks or any scoring marks. But you know, and the, you know, the veins, bearings, and seals you know should be replaced. It's really the rotor that's that's the key component. And so the the, the housing, the compressor housing itself, you're saying that like you can sleeve that and put a new if it's worn through. Nope. I mean, I suppose it could be sleeve. I've never done that. Uh huh. They're they're pretty thick castings. Uh, you know, I would say they're you know they're I won't say infinitely rebuildable, but sure. you know I, I hone them just enough to, to remove any any scoring, and you know maybe it takes you know maybe it takes ten thousandths out of the diameter of the bore or so, but uh, that's not going to hurt anything. The, the diameter isn't critical; it's just a matter of having a good finish inside of the bore. Okay, yeah, because I looked at mine, and maybe what threw me off is when I looked at it, the slots in it are kind of um, they weren't round. Mm-hmm. You know, they were kind of an oval slot. That, oh, the, oh, yeah, the, the port slots. Yeah, they're they're kind of diamond shaped. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was I, I was looking at that and I thought uh, and I thought to myself, oh man, this thing's probably all haggard because these things they look like they're it looks like you know if you're looking at it and thinking in your head like brake road, I was like, oh, this looks like it's kind of wobbled out a little bit, you know. But I guess that's the that's the actual port design, huh? That's the way they're. That's the way they're made. So you can hone them. Uh, oh yeah. And, and if you're inspecting one at a swap meet, what kind of things do you want to do? Like when you when you're at the swap meet, there's one on the table. What's like your go-to thing? I'm sure it's probably not super easy, but if there's some things you can check to make sure, like don't buy it or this needs to be rebuilt. Well, the main go-to thing is try to take the rear cap off and have a look inside. And uh, not not too many people, unfortunately, are willing to do that. I'll I'll tell you how to disassemble one of these things. It's not not necessarily intuitive. You know, most people think, well, you take the front pulley off and work your way back from the front. Not the way to go. Leave the front pulley on. Remove the six rear bolts. The rear the rear housing has has two additional tapped holes in it. They're tapped for five sixteenths eighteen, just standard five sixteenths bolts. Mm-hmm. You you wind those two in, and they'll act as jack screws, and they'll they'll push the cap that's got the bearing retained in it off the rear shaft oh wow and once that's off then you can you know then you can inspect the end view of the rotor and that's that's the important part and then if there's let's say there's one that's been rebuilt by you do you put any markings on there or any type of signature mark that you've rebuilt that piece uh my main signature is i paint the i paint the housing wrinkle black (laughs) okay judson did not do that and there have been a handful of individuals that wanted it painted the you know the original flat black, but I think the wrinkled black looks fantastic on there. And, you know that's that's my signature. And then when someone's had it, so you go to the process of of getting one. Someone, let's say somebody's got a buddy, they pull it apart. When you open those the back of that housing, and you look at it, and so you're going to see a, a sideways uh, like a cutaway profile of, yeah, of the, the end unit. view. Yep. So mm-hmm. when you look at that end view, if if it's like the the rotor like I have where they're kind of veed out, that's no yeah, bueno. Then, no bueno. Then, well, either that or you know, shoot the price way way down. 
Well, that, so that's the rotor. and that's the interesting part, right? So I'm on, I'm because I again I'm down the rabbit hole, and I thought, oh, I I, I just picked up a 140 Corvair, and I was like, oh, I got my little 110. Maybe I'll slap a supercharger on that dude, right? Meanwhile, Chevrolet made a turbocharger for it, which right. I, I would think was probably, I don't know if it's better than the better than the you know the turbo is better than the, the supercharger or what the performance difference is. It'd be interesting to see if someone actually did a write up on the on the two to see what the difference was. Um, but I looked at it and I thought, oh, you know, this guy's got one online. He wants $3,000 for the kit. And it's, it appears to be all refurbished, you know, but that's a lot of money to lay down to not be able to prove. And you would hope yeah, somebody maybe I, has a picture with the back of it off. Yeah, I've, I've been burned many times buying, you know, kits sight unseen. So I, I always make the assumption that, you know, like I said, all the wearable pieces have to be replaced, and that and that the rotor has to be replaced. <laughs> so, and to do something like that, what's that cost? If someone ships you the the whole unit and says, "Here, can you go through this?" What's it cost to do what you just described? Well, I get I get five hundred for a new rotor. There's there's quite a bit of work that sure. goes into one of those. Uh, a normal rebuild, if it does not need the rotor uh, for the VW kit, I think it's like three fifty labor, uh, ninety for the vane set. Uh, 75 for the bearing and seal set. If I rebuild the oiler, that's one and a quarter. So you're probably looking somewhere around, you know, between seven and $800, depending on, on what has to be done. So when you say rebuild the oiler, because I want to get into that a little bit, because you also supply an Amco oiling. You distribute an Amco oiling kit that you found a whole box load of NOS ones, right? Correct. And the purpose of that kit was specifically for what? Was it only for superchargers, or was it to be used no, on no, no, any no. kind of car? No, Judsons are all supplied with Marvel Mystery Oilers. Those have been out of production since the late '90s. I know that for a fact because I, I bought out all of their spares back in 2000. From so that, what? I, so that From I could re the company. Marvel sold out the Turtle Wax, mm -hmm. so I, I was able to. It was a tremendous uh, opportunity, but I was able to buy all their spares from from Turtle Wax. They were, they were going to trash it. They were going to they were going to scrap it all. And these were original vintage style, or they made the same original style for years and years and years. Well, these were just parts. They didn't have any complete oilers left. I just picked up you know containers and you know boxes of gaskets and fittings and castings and, and all that business. So so I was able to rebuild Marvel oilers. Wow, the the Amco's the Amco oilers and the Marvel oilers were originally you know developed for flathead engines back in the you know in the 30s and 40s. Right with the when, overhead you know, valve motors, right? Well, they weren't even overhead valve; they were flatheads. I so, mean flatheads. You know, yes, yes. I'm sorry. Very little oil made it up to the uh, made it up you know the length of the valve stems, and uh, valves would seize. They'd they'd seize open, or uh, you know in later you know later once they did away with the uh, the lead and the gasoline, you know. Uh, guys were burning valves because uh, you know the castings were soft. There was no lubricating properties in the gasoline anymore. So this way, it's a it's an it's a, a way to get some some lubricity back into the fuel from the intake side as opposed to the crankcase side. And this works. I mean, obviously, without question, for the supercharger, this is a must-have. And if you've got a kit but you can't track down the Marvelous Mystery Oiler. People can pick oh, yeah. up one you, of those you, Amco oilers from you. Oh yeah, yeah. They they work on the they work on the Judson just as well. I, I've been using an Amco on mine for for fifteen years. Because I'm looking at so when you say you rebuild the oiler, you'll rebuild the marvelous mystery oiler piece that goes yes. with the supercharger for including that right. price. Mm -hmm. And that's good. And if somebody doesn't have an oiler, let's say they're piecing together the kit and they can't track down an oiler, they can use one of your Amco oilers. And it in in theory, let's say in you're in the fifties and you had an accident or mishap with your car would the amco would have been available or amco came out after oh no, they were they were they were available in the 50s as well oh wow so it really wouldn't technically be i mean it could be something where a guy switched it out because he felt the amco oiled better i mean they're less expensive it's more it's a more compact unit uh you know i've got them you know marvels you know Marvels, just you find them on eBay now. They go for you know two, three hundred dollars, sometimes even more. I don't know what they go for, but that's what people you know are looking to get for them. Right. Whereas uh, you know the Amcos, I think, went out of production in the '60s, and this inventory had sat you know pretty invisible for for many, many years. So you know, I've got them, and they're they're you know much less expensive. So. And yours are NOS. They're all brand new, new old stock. Yep. That's insane. Well, you know the marvelous. I'm looking at the ad from 1950, and it and it was eleven dollars and twenty cents for the mystery oil. 
Yeah, right. right. And, and so how much oil, I mean, what kind of, I mean, obviously probably it's like the deaf flute and the new diesels, right? As much oil or deaf flute as you're going to use is how you drive the car, I would assume. Um, well, for a VW kit, you know, a quart of oil should last about, I like to adjust the oilers a little on the richer side than on the lean side. I'd say a quart of oil would probably go for, you know, five, 600 miles, maybe more. Hmm. And the process and how that works, can you explain that to some of the listeners that maybe don't understand how the oiler works? Because there's really no pump or anything on there, right? No, it, it, it's not pumped in. It, it operates off a manifold vacuum. So there's a there's a fitting just below the carburetor on the manifold, regardless of what Judson kit or, or any engine, really. A fitting goes below the carburetor. In the case of the Amco, it's actually a nozzle. In the case of the Marvel oiler, it's just a hose barb. And manifold vacuum is going to pull, you know, pull oil up through the tube, air and oil up through the tube in the oiler. Uh, and in the case of the Marvel, it, it, it comes off in the form of little drips. In the case of the Amco, it comes out vaporized. That's the nice thing about it. And that goes on in through the supercharger, lubricates the veins, and on in through your engine, and you, you get the benefit of, uh, you know, lubricating your valve seats as well. Now, the, the, did the I'm, I'm looking at the Amco oiler. Did the, and I, and I don't know because I didn't see, I don't see a hard uh, copper line with the marvelous mystery oil one did it come with a hard copper line too or no some and, of the marvels did you know i i supply i always supply them with a flexible basically a piece of fuel hose just so you know it's not as brittle sure but originally they just used the copper line because that's what they used it wasn't for any particular purpose but no i think i think uh marvels might have even been an aluminum hose yeah yeah and and, and so would it be advantageous to use an Amco? Let's say you're running a vintage setup with a motor and you just like it, like a vintage performance setup with dual carbs, dual like the Okrasa kits and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Would it be advantageous to use an oiler on that setup? Well, in your opinion. You know, the, well, in my opinion, yes. You know, what I know of the VW engines, you know, my father had, had a 62 VW and a, and a 73 Super Beetle. And I remember he had to rebuild the first one at about, I think it was around 40,000 miles because what I do know about them, you know, they run with a very tight uh, valve cl- valve clearance. I think it's only four or six thousandths clearance yeah. between the tappet and the valve. And if, you know, if those valves start to erode into the head and it gets to the point where that, that, that gap starts to close up and it becomes zero, then you've got a burnt valve. Now your, your valve is open effectively all the time. And, uh, you know, you know, you got to, you got to replace the head or got to rebuild the head. Right. And, uh, you know, it's on a VW, it may not be that big a deal as it is on a, you know, on a, on a water cooled engine, but still, you know, who, who wants to do it? No, without question. So, so it's a way of, ex- way of extending engine life. And uh, again, the, the, the modern gasoline is much drier than it was back when these cars were current. You know, the lead is gone. Uh, you know, now there's a, you know, a 10% or more alcohol component. So the fuel is much drier than it used to be. So there's, there's no lubricity in the fuel coming in you know, making contact as it flows over those valve seats. Now, and that, just as you said that, I thought of something, and I know there's a lot of zinc additives to oil now to because of the, the removal, I guess, of zinc from the oil. Um, and I right, but you, I haven't done you know, a deep get, dive into that, but I didn't know if, if adding any of that to a little bit of that to any of that vaporized oil would help at all in the combustion process. It might. I think the zinc is more for um, your cam, Right, hardness. And you're, 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 right. That's not going, you know, in the crankcase, that is not going to get to your valve seats. Mm-hmm. It's it, it's separated by your valve stem and your and your guide. You know, so maybe some little amount gets through, but sure. uh, it's it's really you know that's meant for the to remain in the crankcase. But it, but it's interesting with the vapor, you know, with the 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 vacuum actuated vaporizing of the oil. That you know, there I would think there possibly could be some uh, another agent you could possibly add to help with the combustion of the uh, modern day fuels, especially if you've got an original stock engine. I mean, I've always recommended using Marvel Mystery Oil. It's real, readily available, relatively inexpensive. It's very light. It atomizes easily. Uh, some guys use sea foam. Uh, there may be other additives uh, that are even better, but I, you know, that that I'm not sure of. So some guys use synthetic uh, synthetic two cycle oil where mar- marble isn't available. And it's got to be a light oil. It's, it's got to be able to you know vaporize and get in you know go into the air fuel mixture you know and 
you know, in vapor form as opposed to you know large droplets. And then the real question: Did they ever find out what, what the mystery was in the oil? <laughs> I'm not. I've heard that it's a vegetable-based oil. I've heard it's the same as automatic transmission fluid. I, I don't really know. Oh, is it, has, it still it has like a wintergreen smell to it? I don't really know what it is. But uh, is it still quite classified? Like what's in the what's in the mystery oil? Is a top secret? Uh, uh, I don't know formula. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't think they're going to tell you. But you know, anyway, and it seems to work. You know, guys swear by it. Guys have been using it for decades. So. Yeah, and, and I think, and I think especially, you know, any any additional lubrication that you can do to an air cooled engine, I think, without question, is going to, oh yeah, it's going to for sure help, you know. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, um, now, touching back on the superchargers, in respect to the VW kit, someone's trying to piece together a kit. They've got the housing for the VW specifically. What parts can you readily provide for everybody? Oh, geez, pretty much everything. You know, the, like I said, veins bearing seals, pulleys, you know, crank pulleys, supercharger drive pulley, belt tensioners, support brackets, mm-hmm. carburetor jets, uh, the carburetor mounting studs, uh, the throttle linkages. Uh, there's a generator disc on the 36 horse kit. Uh, there's a little carburetor spacer on the 40 horse kit. Uh, air cleaner assemblies, belts, and the oiler pretty much anything if you got the if you got the main assembly you know everything else can be can be made now they will not be original parts sure you know not many original parts unfortunately survive you know very often all you find is is a pump with a broken pulley yeah so and the the, the you you have the bracket too the bracket that holds the uh the um the carburetor i guess it's a it's the supercharger bracket oh yeah in the yep. front that supports it so mm-hmm. you you remake basically everything so someone's got the main part of the kit, you can help fill in all the other pieces. I can complete the kit, yes. Oh. And the the air cleaner housing, that 90-degree air cleaner, did you have those cast or you made some new ones of those? I, I did. Yeah, for the 40 horse, I, I invested in a pattern about 20 years ago because so few of them ever turned up. Uh, you know, parts get, you know, these things get removed from vehicles, you know, pieces get separated, they get lost, and, uh, you know, there just weren't there just weren't many of them out there. There aren't, there aren't many of any of these any of these things out there in the first place. So, uh, I, I did have that housing reproduced. Yes. Now VW people are a little different um, from the standpoint of they're quite experimental. You know, some of like the English car guys are like real rigid. They'll only do it either way the factory did it or exactly. And I don't know if and I haven't done a bunch of stuff with the you know English car guys and whatnot. But I think for the most part they they, they walk a narrow path. Now the VW crowd is quite diverse. Mm-hmm. Um, with that being said, have you ever seen anyone put dual superchargers on an engine? I saw a photo of one once. I've never seen one myself. Um, you know, it could be done. I mean, you're going to have to make up some custom bracketry and do a little bit of plumbing, but I suppose it could be done. You, you know, you're effectively you know doubling your uh, your your boost output or your you know your volume of air output. And the what we talked about for a little bit, we talked about the displacement and the size of the supercharger, which was kind of mm-hmm. the limiting factor, which is why they stopped. Right. When we talked earlier, you told me the reason that they really stopped making them is because by the time the 1600 came out, the size of the compressor and all that it stuff. Was it was too small. It, just it didn't, didn't really work. have much of an effect, right? And un- unfortunately, you know, the VW, at least on the Beatles, you know, that that volume of, of of a space you have to work with in there under the deck lid isn't very big. They couldn't go rearwards because the the uh, fan shroud was there. They couldn't go forward because you'd be running into the deck lid. They would have had to come up with a you know a larger diameter casting, and you know that may have caused another issue. You know, a, a larger diameter casting with a different rotor now, so they they never did it. Hmm. And then the the in respect to Judson, the evolution of their design never really changed. As Not far really, as no. as far as the nope. the veins, the, the the design, the internal design, that's pretty nope. much the same for all of them. Same since the early fifties. Yeah, that's a you know it's 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 interesting the you know the supercharger technology that was there now compared to what's out today as far as all the hard fixed billet machine pieces and I think technology oh, there's no comparison. <laughs> it, it, it plays no a a huge difference. What what kind of PSI are those kits putting out like a Judson kit? All those kids, all the Judson kids were designed to put out between four and five psi max. They didn't want customers to be, you know, blowing head gaskets and, you know, ruining engines. So, you know, with their with their stock 
their stock pulley setups, that's what they were limited to. And if somebody's got, let's say, an accurate boost gauge on there, right? Mm-hmm. Is there a telltale way of looking at it and, and being able to tell by what your pressure is doing that if you've got an issue, it should probably need a rebuild? I mean, if it's not putting out any pressure, uh, you know, that's a pretty good sign. Or if the unit gets, you know, excessively noisy, uh, you know, real rattly, that's that's a sign that the, the slots and the, and the rotors are, are opened up and pretty, you know, the veins now, they're not just sliding in and out, they're rocking in and out. Right. So they, they don't compress as well and they will become noisy. And do you keep track of the people that you read? Like, let's say somebody says, hey, I bought a car from this guy, Joe Smith. And do you happen to have a record of rebuilding one for a Joe Smith with a 57 Beetle out of Arizona, whatever the case is? Do you? I, you know, I, I used to be, you know, pretty conscious of saving, you know, correspondence and all that. And I, I do have a lot of old correspondence. And there have been some instances where someone has picked up the kit from somebody that I dealt with, you know, 20 years ago. Um very often, just I just keep you know an envelope with the uh, you know their name and address on there, and briefly what I did. But uh, I, I kept that pretty informal. Yeah, I was I was just curious, you know, just to see if uh, you know because you didn't you don't put a specific stamping, which I think would be pretty cool if you did a little stamping on the back, just showing that it was actually rebuilt by you. Um, well, I, I I chose not to do that. Yeah, no, that's. Uh, that's one of my uh, was one of my questions in, in respect to just trying to track down, you know, because in today's day of things being so easily accessible over the internet, you can also get your, you can also get kind of swindled a little bit, especially if it's something that's hard to pull apart as a supercharger and trying mm-hmm. to deal with stuff over the over the internet. So, and that's the thing when I looked at this kit for three thousand bucks, you can make stuff look really really good with new, you know, it can make it look real good on the outside, but you know. <laughs> You got to look at the, you got to see the, in, the internal condition, really. Yeah, and now, and so the Amco lubricator kit. We wanted to get into that a little more in depth. Now, you have your own website where people can get uh, the Amco uh, auxiliary lubrication kit from mm-hmm. you directly. These NOS kits, and and that's amcolubes.com is that website, right? Correct. And so people can support the guy that's out there helping us keep these old cars on the road and not really support you because I'm sure you make a living doing something else. No. Yes, I, don't, I do not depend on any of this. <laughs> <laughs> they don't need to buy an Amco oiler so that you can get your next meal. But, uh, you know, it's good that you have these. And, you know, people that want to add a little bit of a nostalgia to their motor and some vintage performance and maybe some stuff that would be additional lubrication. I mean... Would it make any difference to put it on a stock engine uh, without a supercharger on there? I mean, it would definitely add some some benefit to it. You think maybe cool oh, the heads a little bit? Absolutely. I've sold hundreds of kits for for stock VW engines. Yeah, these can be these can be adapted literally to any engine, any automobile engine. You know, marine engines, uh, stationary. You know, pump engines, gen, you know, generator engines, uh, tractors. Uh, it's just a matter of, of pointing the nozzle into the. Uh, into the air, into the intake manifold. So really, any car, any vintage car that somebody's mm-hmm. got, they can put this kit on it. Yeah. Yep. No, that's pretty. Uh, that's pretty cool. I mean, and I they're, really they're beautiful, beautiful little, little units. I mean, you couldn't manufacture these things today for what what I sell them for. They were made in the U.S. They're they're a heavy zinc cast cast head. Uh, all the little bits and pieces on them are hand machined. They're they're beautiful pieces. <laughs> and I mean that that had that I mean that's almost a story in itself like how you were I mean was it just by happenstance that you ran into a big lot of the stuff that was all NOS well you know this kind of came about as you know also through the Jetson hobby you know some of these kids I find would not have Marvel Oilers I couldn't find Marvel Oilers and I you know I found out about this fellow who had you know these Amco kits and they could be substituted and one thing led to another and I ended up buying them out back in I think 2006 Wow. Yeah, because I guess if, if he's just selling the oiler, it, from what you do with rebuilding the supercharge, it, it's a natural yeah. option. Yeah, kind, of, kind of went together hand in hand. Yep. Yeah, yeah, I think people are, you know, people are, the fun of the hobby, part of the fun of the hobby is the thrill of the hunt and searching for these pieces, you know, especially like a guy sees a supercharger kit, doesn't see it available for sale, and then he decides mm-hmm. to go look for you know, vintage parts and pieces and starts buying housings and all that stuff. So it's a great, listen, I'm thankful for the service that you offer for the hobby because it's, it's keeping something there that you truly have to have a passion to do because who else is doing it besides you? Nobody. You know what I mean? Pretty much. 
And, you know, it's a lot, a lot easier finding these parts now than it was 20 years ago. You know, you know, pre-internet, you know, you had to call up, you know, repair shops or other parts houses. And you know anybody who has one of these? And maybe they did, maybe they didn't. And you might have to write a letter or write letters back and forth. It was much, much slower then than it is now. So the internet's made it much easier. Yeah, it's made it. It's made it a internet ton easier. easier. Yeah, to get this to, you know finding these parts and pieces and then, you know, things all over the internet. I mean, I, I know that there was a, a website up for a while that was a Judson registry website, I think it was. Mm -hmm. And I think yeah. they kind of shut that down. And I would think that the purpose would be to track down how many people out there are actually, you know, running Judson's. Yeah, that was, that was hosted by John Moxon in the UK. And it was, a, it was a beautiful site and he gathered a lot of information I forget how many how many members he had, but it was it was several hundred. He had, you, know, you know, hundreds of photographs of you know people's cars, and uh, I think the archives from that site have been turned over to the Sama. But, yeah, you know, I, I don't think all the photos went along with it. The, you know, unfortunately, they didn't. I actually reached out to John for a possible uh, interview on the podcast, and he declined to come on. I guess it became an all-consuming <laughs> hobby, and maybe doesn't want to open that door again. <laughs> I don't know. It's a, it's a, you know, but I think there's, there, you know, there's a lot of great history on this and, and this is, you know, we're going back to this American ingenuity of the, the opportunity to come from anybody yeah. in, in this country to be able to start from nothing with an idea and create something that w looks like for the Judson family was quite a viable business for several years. Oh yeah. They were, they were going from, you know, to the early fifties up, I have a copy of a letter from, I think, 1971 stating that they no longer produce superchargers nor supply parts for them. So it was at least a 20-year run. And what what did they end up doing after after that, after they stopped making the superchargers? I, I'm, I know they continued with what they called the electronic magneto that went through the 70s, but I don't really know. Uh, I well, think John Moxon had more of that history than, uh, than, I, than I do. And they actually, so that's right. So in regards to the Magneto, there was a specific Magneto that they sold with this kit? It was a separate item. They, the Magneto could be used on any on any engine as well. I think it was, I don't think it was really a Magneto. I think it was basically a high output coil. It looked real nice, so it had things on it. Yeah. It was a nice, uh, nice design. No, I've got one. I've got, I've, got a, I've got a full Judson kit. I actually have a full VW kit that came off of my uh, 56 VW. And then mm -hmm. I have, uh, I have. Well, I told you earlier when I finished my garage at my house, a buddy, of mine, the hot rod guy, gave me two, uh, a forty horse and a thirty six horse uh, compressor housing, and mm -hmm. one's all disassembled, and you can see the veins are all worn out in it. But um, so you I've throw got throw them away. Yeah, what's that? Throw them away. Oh, the compressor housing or the uh, not the no, housing? No, the veins. <laughs> don't don't reuse the veins. <laughs> yeah. No. Well, there's. Oh no, definitely keep the housing. No, that's uh, that's worth something. So. Yeah, and, you know, it makes a cool. It makes a cool. Uh, for sure, a cool. Um, you know, in my display cabinet of cool stuff where people say, "What's that?" You know. Um, oh yeah. I I definitely think it'd be cool to see one on a forty horse. I mean, I'd le I'd love to see, and and I'm going to do a little bit of research to see if I can find the performance difference of you know, stock versus with a supercharger. Cause I'm sure that documentation exists somewhere, but I'm going to do a little, a little bit of a deep dive on that. Well, uh, I think Judson's, I think Judson's claims were a little bit, um, you know, a little on the optimistic side. Right. I think about, you can expect about a 20 to 25% increase mainly in, in low and mid range torque. And, uh, you know, I've, I've had several BWs, BW users tell me that, you know, it makes their cars, you know, just that much more drivable in modern traffic without becoming a hazard. You know, they can almost get out of their own way now. Whereas, you know, you know, she's a 36 horse VW going up a hill with two people in it, you know, yeah. <laughs> it becomes dangerously slow. So. I, I would almost think a guy would take a 36 horse and try to modify it to work on a 25 horse. Cause when I, I had a 25 horse in my split, I drove it for two weeks and I'm, I'm more of a custom guy. Like all my cars have, mm -hmm. you know, custom hot rodded motors in them. And uh, I, I tried to just be hang with the cool kids for a minute and just keep that 25 horse in there. But I'm going to tell you right now, I lost a spark plug and it was like, I lost six and a quarter horse and I was not happy about <laughs> right. it. I mean, I'm going to tell you right now, I was, dri I was driving that thing and I thought, who? I had to downshift getting on the freeway to get, yeah. and I just yeah. thought like, this is, 
This, da- is, this is dangerous. It's <laughs> dangerously slow. You have no choice. You're just a victim on the highway of whatever's going to happen, you know? Um, right. So I, yeah, I, I, I'd be interested to see if anybody's ever modded one to put on an early 25 horse. Well, I'm sure they have. You know, I, I've, I've never represented these things as being anything more than a vintage performance item. Yeah. And, you know, uh, there certainly are you know, more effective modern ways to tune an engine. But uh, they're just such a cool little piece, you know. They are they are a piece of, of history, and uh, and they, they you know they do work somewhat. Now the the magneto coil thing that they did, you don't do any of that stuff. No, no. And I'm sure there's probably somebody because I thought they did a distributor too as well, but I, I don't believe so. I, I had I had an NOS coil a few years ago, beautiful piece, and you know start the car up, car would run great for about 20 minutes, then it would start missing. And I thought it was the fuel pump, and I thought it was the fuel pressure regulator. And I, I was chasing chasing this thing around and around for about two years. It drove me crazy. And uh, one day, a friend of mine happened to put his hand on the coil when it was running, running and he got zapped. And uh, there was some kind of a short that would present itself when the engine compartment would warm up. I switched the coil out, and it, you know, it hasn't missed a beat since. So <laughs> you know, they're, even though they're new, they're not necessarily good. So and I think I, I don't I don't get involved with that. Yeah, I think one of those things a coil is sometimes often overlooked as uh, especially when a car starts running bad after time. Like it started up mm-hmm. fine. Usually our, our idea is like a coil is bad and the car won't start. But that, that's not always the case. Yeah, I've recently read in a bunch of places that as things get warmed up if it starts to run a little funky, check that coil yep. cuz it very well could be something yep. happening with the about, coil. It takes about 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, I know it's, it's it's funny. I was reading the same thing on a, on another on another forum somewhere, and that's exactly what it came out to. So, so George, anything that we that we didn't discuss that you think deserves discussing in in realm of the Judson world? Uh, you know, what should I say? You know, guys, sometimes you know have you know greater expectations of what these what these are going to put out for them. You know what kind of performance gains they're going to get. You got to put it into into perspective. You know it's old technology. Uh, you know, you know this is you know 50s and 60s production, but the technology was older than that. So uh, most of the interest now is you know for show cars and and occasional drivers. But uh, you know it's it's just a really it's a really cool little item, and uh, you know I'm I'm glad to help out in any way I can. Yeah, no, I definitely appreciate what you're doing for the hobby. And you know, the question out there to somebody that's looking to do this. If they get a kit, it's gone through, you've gone through it and all that kind of stuff, they're fairly reliable. You're not going to have many issues with them. I mean, it's a pretty simplistic piece. I mean, what's your opinion on that? It's a very simple piece. The main thing with the kit is make sure your oiler is adjusted properly and that it never runs dry. And how how do you check that? Like, how do you how are you able to make sure that your oiler's adjusted? Well, J- Judson, you know, they had a base setting in their installation instructions of, you know, a drop every... I don't know, I think that I think it was five or six seconds at idle. You know, I might richen that up to every you know for three to four seconds in the beginning just to make sure it's getting enough. And but you sort of base it on oil consumption versus mileage, and you you know make very very small incremental adjustments as you have to. Uh, you know, the worst case if it's too rich, you'll you might burn a little oil or waste a little oil. If it's too lean, then your rotor wears out and your veins wear out. So always err on the rich side. Well, I definitely, uh, I definitely appreciate appreciate the info. Now, if any of our listeners want to contact you, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Uh, my email is uh, gbfolchi at yahoo.com. And Fulci is F-O-L-C-H-I? F-O-L-C-H-I at yahoo.com, yep. Okay, and then the website for anybody that wants to have the, to get one of those Amco lubricators. Oh, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's uh, www.yahoo.com. A M P C O L U B E S dot com. Perfect, and you sh- and you ship those worldwide wherever somebody's looking to get one sent to. Well, I'll ship, ship them anywhere, sure. Perfect. Yeah, I mean, you know, George, I appreciate you coming on the podcast and and giving us this information. And I'm sure I'll get an email from someone that says, "Hey, man, you didn't ask this." <laughs> but as uh, we keep going down the rabbit hole, and if I get more feedback on some other stuff. I may have to have you back on here, but I definitely am um, thankful for what you do for the hobby, and I really appreciate your your time, commitment, and knowledge to this this oh, particular you. aspect of the hobby. Well, well, my pleasure. And yeah, any other questions? Just uh, you fire them at me. I'll I'll answer them as best I can. You got it.
Well, I hope you guys liked that podcast because I sure did enjoy the history aspect of that podcast. And I learned a lot talking to uh, George. So appreciate him for coming to the podcast and make sure you guys reach out to him. Let him know you heard about him here on Let's Talk Doves. Now let's get into some shout outs, man. X Bruce X says, great podcast. Thank you for all these great shows, Bill. I've got a 67 Deluxe that I picked up two years ago that was sitting deep in a garage for 25 years. I was lucky enough to get my hands on it and... It's months from being back on the road. There's pictures on my Instagram, X bring us X. I've been learning so much and listening to your stories and knowledge. Thanks, and please keep it up. Now, Bruce gave us a five-star review. Now, Armchair67 says, great podcast. Bill, you continue to do a great job with the podcast. It inspired me to get out in the garage again and turn wrenches. You've had some great guests and awesome stories. As a kid in the 80s, I've really enjoyed your covering of that era of the scene. P.S. You're wrong about the turtle backs on my car. <laughs> I know you secretly desire a set for each of your V-dubs. Uh, man, armchair, I appreciate the five-star review. And uh, you never know, man. Listen, uh, I'm lacing up some four-luggers on my uh, Type 34 Gia. So we'll see, man. Some people might not like them. Look, to each their own. But appreciate you guys enjoying the podcast for sure. Shout out to Jacob Garofalo with the Bus Pilots Association, Idaho Bus Pilots, for shooting down some swag. They got some pretty cool gear. Make sure you guys check out their website and follow them on Instagram, Bus Pilots Association. To support the podcast, go to letstalkdubs.com, click on the merch to support, buy some gear, and support your favorite podcast. Don't forget, if you hear about it here on the podcast, let those vendors know you heard about it on the podcast, and that's what's getting you to make that purchase so they know the value of being part of let's talk dubs until next week guys we got more great podcasts on the way later